Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 70. In this episode, we are going to be listening to Josh Smith as he tackles this question, why did Jesus predict the failure of his disciples? This message is based on Jesus's interaction with his disciples on the eve of his death. Hello, and thank you for listening to this podcast today. As always, these podcasts go out with a sincere prayer that everyone who listens to this will be blessed and built up and edified and even challenged by what you hear when we read these verses and when we try to speak from them. And even the speaker himself, I I find myself to be very challenged by these verses that I'm about to read today. Uh, in our home church, our home assembly in Michigan, we're going through the Passion Week, the week that the Lord Jesus uh, dies and then rises from the dead. And it's a very important moment in the scriptures. It's something, of course, that so much of the scriptures have been pointing forward to. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but it's also one of those weeks that uh, so many important things are happening and the gospel narratives focus in on that week with some significance. If you look at Matthew 26, it really begins that week, and it starts with the Lord Jesus uh, being anointed, and uh, the woman breaking the alabaster box, and the precious ointment goes on him. And then Judas agrees to betray the Lord Jesus, and then he has the Passover meal with his disciples, where he introduces the Lord's Supper that we're hopefully very familiar with, where he says, take, this is my body. And then he takes a cup, having giving thanks, and he gave it to them, and he says this is the blood of the new covenant, or the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, we practice that. It's something the New Testament goes on to uh, describe in more detail and give us a little bit more to to think about and to um, put into practice when we remember the Lord Jesus and his death. Um, But this is a very important week. But there's something interesting that happens after he finishes introducing the Lord's Supper, or the remembrance of the Lord Jesus, and before he reaches the Garden of Gethsemane where he goes into prayer. There is a, a couple of verses that I'd like to look at that I have personally often overlooked, right? I imagine that many of you have too. It's a portion of Scripture in Matthew 26 between verses 30 and 35. And what is going to happen there is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to look at his disciples and he's going to predict their failure, a future falling away. Imagine sitting your kids down at the dinner table as you're about to impart some wisdom to them and saying to them, you're all going to fail. Uh, Imagine uh, a a boss in a company uh, sitting down his, uh, you know, the most important people that he's working with, his managers and, and things like that and saying, you're all going to fall. Uh, You're going to make some big mistakes this week. Uh, Imagine attending some of the popular megachurches in the prosperity gospel. And can you imagine Joel Olstein standing in front of all of the people who come and listen to him and him looking at that vast audience and saying something like, you're all going to fail. You're all going to fall. It is just simply, um, obviously, an unpopular message. It wouldn't be something that really uh, meshes well with so much of what we hear today. And yet the Lord Jesus is honest with his disciples. 
but he's doing this for a reason. And as, as we read these verses, I think it would be important to consider why is he telling them that they're going to fail? Why even say it? Why even record it in the scriptures? Why, why couldn't they have just forsaken him and fled and left him without the prediction? And of course, it, it almost sets up Peter for an even worse failure. As Peter says, but not I'm not going to do that. Not me. And then all the disciples say the same. So why even announce it to them? Why even tell them? And why even write it down in the scriptures? And so let's read these verses together. And then I'd like to make a few suggestions that will hopefully be helpful and beneficial for us. When they, when they had sung a hymn, don't forget they've just finished the Lord's Supper. So when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away, because of you I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Verse 31, Jesus says to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. A future failure. Unpopular message, you're all going to fall. You know, I wonder sometimes if we if we can often set ourselves up for disappointment and think to ourselves that we're never going to make mistakes. We become so discouraged. We become so disappointed when we realize that, you know, we actually do fail. We actually do sin. We continue to sin. And we fight that battle that, that Paul talks about in the New Testament epistles. There's a, a healthy tension between understanding that we are going to make mistakes, but not giving ourselves liberty to make them. It's not as if we look at making a mistake and think, oh, this is, a, this is an epic failure that I will never recover from. Um, and also, on the other hand, saying like, hey, everybody makes mistakes. We all sin. What's the big deal? Somewhere in the middle is a healthy balance. And I think that perhaps I can reflect in my own life and see times when I have been when I become extremely disappointed in myself because of my failures. And rightly so. We should hate sin. Absolutely hate it and run from it and and deal with it ruthlessly in our lives, like the Lord Jesus said, to cut out the eye that that causes us to sin and cut off the hands, to deal with it ruthlessly and to not be okay with it. And yet at the same time, realize that we are experiencing the grace of God, that we come under his mercy and that we are forgiven of our sins because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So I think it's important to point out that healthy tension that takes place. But let me ask you this question. Why predict their failure to begin with? I like to make five suggestions, and they'll take about one minute each. So the first one is that there will be a, fulfill, a fulfillment of prophecy. The reason he points this out, he quotes from Zechariah 13 and 7. And he says there's going to be a time when the shepherd is, is killed and the sheep will be scattered. Another opportunity for the Lord Jesus to demonstrate that he is exactly who he said he is. Another fulfillment of prophecy 
another reminder that God is in control. And if there has ever been a time in our lives that we need to be reminded that God is in control, it is in this time of chaos, this time of uncertainty, this time when everything that has been secure and certain and stable seems to in some ways have flipped to uncertainty and chaos and and there is so much um, feeling of out of being out of control, whether that is from a political standpoint or a health standpoint. Um, there just seems to be so much upheaval, but God is in control. And that is such a reassuring fact, the reality that we are not in control. It seems so uh, contrary and opposite to the culture that we're a part of, where we want to be in control of everything. We want to control our health. We want to control our finances. We want to control um, other people's behavior within our households, with, like with our children. Uh, just so much of everything that we do says if we work harder, we will be successful. Um, that's just what's ingrained into us. And the reality is, yes, we can influence those things. But the reality is we are not in control. We can exercise all we want and eat as well as we can, but uh, we, we don't have control over what happens to us with our health. We influence it, we do the best that we can, but we are not in control. The same thing could be said for finances. We don't just um, never go to college, never earn a degree, never put anything into um, our occupational endeavors and expect the Lord to bless, to bless us. But at the same time, we don't dig in too far and become pre-over, uh, I was going to say preoccupied or over-occupied with our employment and with our vocation. And uh, we just have to realize that we are not in control, and God is, and that is actually quite a reassuring thing. So that's the first reason I'd like to suggest that the Lord Jesus predicted their failure because it was going to fulfill prophecy and remind them once again, and in turn remind us that God is in control. The second reason is to prepare them for falling. And this is what I was getting at when I first began this podcast today. We're all going to fall. We're all going to fail in the future because we, we are human. Uh, we have uh, the flesh that we battle against and wrong desires. There's that fight and there's that battle that Paul talks about in the, in the book of Romans. The Lord Jesus tells them, you're going to fail. You're going to fall. But he's doing it to prepare them for that moment. And also notice that it is with restoration in mind. He doesn't just tell them they're going to fail, but he tells them that there's going to be a time when he rises from the dead and he will meet them again in Galilee. An interesting study might be to think about why he wanted to meet them in Galilee. And we won't go into the, the details of that right now, um, but it's something interesting to, to prayer, prayerfully consider. So he's preparing them for the, the failing. And uh, it's something that would be important for us to understand, too. There will be times when we don't meet our own expectations, when we don't live up to the standards that we should. But we can know that there is always opportunity for restoration. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I always think of that verse in 1 John where it says, when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. And so uh, he's preparing them 
for when they would fall with restoration in mind. The third reason I'd like to suggest not only the fulfillment of prophecy and preparing them for falling with restoration in mind, but the third reason would be to show them the danger of self-confidence. Look, look at Peter. Peter's made some pretty big mistakes that we all know about. He's going to deny the Lord um, within a few verses in, in, in the next chapter. Uh, we remember that, that it was Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration who wanted to acknowledge all three of the people, and he was missing out on the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus, and he was rebuked in, in the sense that the voice came and said, this, this is my beloved son. You also remember he rebukes the Lord. He said, and he's told by the Lord Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Uh, so here's another example. The Lord Jesus says, you're all going to fall. And Peter is so self-confident, you could call it arrogance. You could call it ignorance. Whatever you want to call it, he's, he is, uh, he's saying, not me. I will resist until the end. I will go to death with you. Even if all these other people around me here today are going to fall, I will not. It uh, shows us the danger of self-confidence. And we've already talked about this. We're, we're not in control. You and I cannot uh, expect to depend on ourselves and um, use our own motivations and uh, try to power through with our own strength. If we do that, our failure will be even greater. But we depend on God. We depend on His words. We have to trust what the Lord Jesus says. And that's, that's actually the fourth reason. It leads right into it. Number three and number four kind of go together. Number three is that the Lord is showing them the danger of self-confidence. But number four is that we have to trust what he says. We trust what the Lord Jesus teaches. We trust what God's word teaches, the scripture. Peter flat out contradicts it a flat-out denial. The Lord Jesus says, you're all going to fall. He basically says, no, I'm not. Now, while we would, in our own minds, at least I would say to myself, I would never do that. I would never listen to the words of the Lord Jesus and then say, no, that's not the case with me. It might be for everyone else, and this is kind of what Peter did. It might be for everyone else, but not me. But then I have to consider that I read things in the Word of God about um, not being angry, not being bitter, not being selfish, to be more humble and less full of uh, pride, to, to reject that, that pride and not to be selfish and not to uh, think more highly of myself than I should. And all these things, I, I read them, and I think they're great for everyone else but I will often uh, overlook it in my own life. Maybe it is arrogance, maybe it's ignorance, but perhaps it's self-confidence, but it is a denial of what the Word of God teaches us. And so it's a fresh reminder for me, and I want to ask you today as you listen to this, is this not also a reminder for you to take these simple instructions from the Word of God? This was not a deep theological uh, doctrine statement that takes quite a bit of unpacking to figure out. The Lord Jesus just said, you're going to fall. And Peter denies it. He says, nope, not me. Let's take the simple things from the word of God, as, as Alistair Begg says, the main things and the plain things, and let's just take them to heart. 
And uh, it's, we follow the simple and basic commands of the Word of God. And yes, we dig into the deep things too. But sometimes it's the little things that make the biggest difference. It's taking what the Word of God tells us and we put it into action. So the first reason, fulfillment of prophecy. God is in control. The second reason, preparing them for falling with restoration in mind. The third reason is to show the danger of self-confidence. The fourth reason, to make sure that we are trusting and abiding by and obeying the teachings of the Lord Jesus in the scripture. And the last one, and this is an important one, I would like to suggest it's because it was ultimately going to further the gospel. So did I just suggest that people failing is actually going to result in the gospel being furthered? or uh, reaching out farther. I really enjoyed this part of it. I, I really find this to be fascinating that these people, these disciples, all forsook him. They were cowardly in that way. They ran away. They hid. And other than Peter, and it looks like John, uh, at least they followed it at, at, some, of, at some distance. But um, the rest of them, I mean, it says that they were meeting behind closed doors and shaking and trembling and fearful and afraid. But the Lord Jesus told them it was going to happen. Now, what is one of the great um, uh, proofs of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? We all know, we've heard of this from an apologetic standpoint, right? What would make the disciples turn from being such cowards, really, and failing and falling and hiding and, and being so scared into now being ones who, with a great uh, zeal and enthusiasm and passion, go out with the gospel. It's because they met the, the risen Savior, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he told them in these verses. I'm going to rise again, and I'll go before you into Galilee. And when they met him, such a dramatic difference, such a dramatic turnaround. Now, I'm going to say that from... I mean, if there's someone who's listening to this today and you are not a Christian, a dramatic turnaround, would you like to see that happen in your life? It can only happen through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. There are no self-help manuals that can, that can produce a real, authentic, sincere change in your life, except it's through the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to think about it if you're a Christian today. We can get off track. There are times when we fail. There are times when we fall. And if we want to change that track, if we want to get back on track, we need to know the Savior. We need to know God. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Do you know him? I'm asking you today, as a, if, you're not, if you're a non-believer, if you're not a Christian, do you know him? And now I'd like to ask you, if you are a Christian, how well do you really know him? Do you ever think of those words in 1 Peter where it says, Having not seen him, you love him. I read those words a short time ago, and I have to admit, it cut me very deeply in my heart. Do I really love him? I've never seen him. I've never seen what he looked like. I never saw one of his miracles. I never saw him hanging on the cross. And, and he's my savior and I love him. But how much do I really love him? Having not seen him, 
you love him. How is that love demonstrated? How is that love proven or lived out? That's the question I want to leave you with. I want to challenge you with it. I want you, I would encourage you to ask God in, in his presence, in prayer, how do I live out this fact that I love the Lord Jesus? So why did he predict their failures? To fulfill, the, to fulfill prophecy, to show that God's in control, to prepare them for falling with restoration in mind, to show them the danger of self-confidence, to make sure they're trusting the simple instructions and words of the Lord Jesus, and to ultimately further the gospel. May this short study, may, this, may these reflections and these thoughts be a blessing to you today, and may we all honor uh, the Lord Jesus more and glorify God by worshiping the Lord Jesus and showing our love to him. Thank you for listening.